0: Here's a pop quiz. What do Beethoven, Bible prophecy, and a jar of Nutella have in common? If you don't know the answer, I think you're going to want to stay tuned to this week's edition of The Voice of Prophecy. When I was a kid, visiting a great-uncle and aunt in Germany, I went downstairs one morning for breakfast and discovered that Europeans eat chocolate for breakfast. Now, to be honest, that, that didn't come as a complete surprise, because I have Dutch background, and the Dutch put chocolate sprinkles on a piece of white bread and heap butter on top of it, and they actually call that lunch, so I'm used to the idea of chocolate at mealtime. But in Germany, I discovered something brand new. There was a jar of Nutella on the table. Now, back in the 1970s, I'm not sure that Nutella was all that common back here in North America. And, and even if it was, I lived in this tiny little town behind the Alaska panhandle. And I'm pretty sure our grocery store didn't have this stuff. Or, if they did, my mother never bought it. But I discovered it in Germany. Chocolate spread for breakfast or to be more precise, chocolate and hazelnut spread. Now, what I didn't realize that morning, in fact, I I didn't even realize this until a few weeks ago, Napoleon Bonaparte, to some extent, is actually responsible for the invention of Nutella. Don't believe me? Well, then go Google it. Yeah, I think you're going to see it's true. Back in the year 1806, just after the Dark Ages came to a close and General Berthier marched on the city of Rome, Napoleon turned his sights on the British Empire. The Brits were a key obstacle to his dreams of world domination, or at least continental domination. So Napoleon tried to cripple British trade routes. And the result? A Mediterranean blockade that had the unintended consequence of driving the price of chocolate through the roof. So over in northern Italy, that caused a problem for chocolate makers, particularly in the Piedmont Valley. Now, if you happen to be a student of Bible prophecy or religious history, you might remember the Piedmont Valley or the Piedmont region is home to the Waldensians, this early Protestant group that was heavily persecuted for its distinct biblical faith. But wouldn't you know it? By the 18th and 19th centuries, the Piedmont region was also home to a thriving, or at least I'm assuming it was thriving, chocolate industry. So over in the city of Turin, you know the place where they have the Shroud of Turin? There was this guy by the name of Michel Prochet. I'm I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly. Michel Prochet. And he came up with the idea of adding chopped up hazelnuts to the chocolate in order to thin it out to ration the chocolate supply. So his chocolate was about 70% chocolate and 30% hazelnut paste. And of course, as those of you who have actually tried Nutella know, the end result was absolutely delicious. But back in those days, he, he didn't call it Nutella. He called it, and I hope I can say this right because I don't really speak Italian, he called it Gianduia. And uh, about a half century later, a local chocolate manufacturer took his idea and created a product, and here we go again. I'm going to have to pronounce an impossible Italian word. He called it Gianduiotto. I, I think that's how you say this. Gianduiotto, G-I-A-N-D-U-I-O-T-T-O, Gianduiotto. It was actually named after this popular puppet who was supposed to look like the people who lived in the Piedmont region. So, in a way, it's actually Napoleon you can thank for the invention of Nutella. Napoleon and Hitler. And why Hitler? Because in the middle of the next century, World War II breaks out, and once again supply lines are compromised and chocolate gets expensive. You might even remember that in almost every World War II film you've ever seen, chocolate is this big treat that a soldier can give to a local kid. It was valuable. So, Hitler actually made chocolate expensive, and it was in short supply, so once again, the resourceful Italians started adding hazelnuts. In 1946, this pastry maker by the name of Pietro Ferrero resurrects the old recipe of chocolate and hazelnut, and in 1964, he changes the name to Nutella. And there you have it two of Europe's biggest war mongers gave you your chocolate hazelnut spread. They didn't know they were doing it, but they're the ones who are responsible. And now that I know the history, every time I see a jar of Nutella, I actually like to think of that as a tangible 21st century reminder right there on the grocery store shelf. A reminder that Bible prophecy has never been wrong. And why in the world would a jar of chocolate spread make me think about Bible prophecy? Well, it's because of an old, old prediction in the book of Daniel, one that you might actually know about. In the second chapter, the king of Babylon suddenly has this disturbing dream, and in the middle of the night, he wakes up absolutely terrified. But it wasn't a monster in his dream that woke him up. It wasn't somebody chasing him, or one of those dreams where you're back in school and you can't find your classroom, or it's exam day and you didn't study. This was something completely different. What the king saw was a statue. The head was made out of gold, the chest made out of silver, the belly and thighs of bronze, the legs of iron, and the feet made of iron mixed with clay. And when you get to the end of Daniel chapter 2, you actually discover that each of those sections, each of those different substances, represented a different world empire. That statue in the dream was actually a prediction of the world's history in advance. It predicted Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome and the breakup of the Western Roman Empire in 476 A.D. Somehow, almost 600 years before Jesus, a Hebrew prophet accurately predicts the future of the world and he gets it 100% right. It's the kind of thing that defies explanation. And and I'm not talking about fuzzy predictions like the ones you get from Nostradamus. You need to read Daniel 2. This has specifics and detail. I mean, if you haven't read Daniel 2, you've got to read it because there is no way a human being just made this stuff up. Now, at the end of that prediction in Daniel 2, Daniel tells the Babylonian king that the fragments of the Western Roman Empire, which eventually became the nations of Western Europe, the Western Roman Empire, said Daniel, would never be put back together. He said people would try and try and try, but it would never be successful. Here's what he says in Daniel 2.43. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another. All you have to do to figure out if Daniel was right is open a European history book. One after another, different contenders have tried to piece that empire all back together. They even called it the Holy Roman Empire. And everybody from Charlemagne to present-day contenders have tried to defy the prophecy of Daniel chapter 2. They've tried to restore what the Western world had when there was a Western Roman Empire. But they have never, ever succeeded. Why? Because God said they wouldn't. They will not adhere to one another. So now, every time I see a jar of Nutella, I'm reminded that Daniel was right. It will never be back together. Napoleon tried to put all of Europe together under his influence. Hitler told himself he would succeed where Napoleon failed, that he would build the Third Reich. And you know how both stories ended. Napoleon died in exile, his dreams never ever realized, and Hitler dies in a bunker. And I'm telling you, it wasn't because they weren't capable. Their early military campaigns demonstrated they could have done it. But the second chapter of Daniel said they would not. And that's the connection between Nutella, the Bible, and Napoleon. But what about the composer Beethoven? I promised you at the outset of the show that I would show you how he fits into the mix. So we'll take a short break, and then we'll come right back and visit the great composer.
1: Hello, I'm Jean Boonstra. Do you feel as if you have more questions than answers in your life? Like, where is God when people suffer? Or can I find real happiness? And is there any hope for our chaotic world? Are you searching for answers to these and other of life's biggest questions? Well, the Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers that you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. You can choose to study in the format that's most convenient for you. You may either do the lessons completely online, or have them mailed right to your home. Both options are completely free of charge. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions.
0: We are back from the break. You are listening to The Voice of Prophecy. Now, what I'm about to say might just be my own humble opinion, but not many people argue that Beethoven may have been the greatest composer of all time. I happen to think that. Even if you're not a fan of his music, you at least have to admit that what Beethoven accomplished is way beyond impressive. I mean, just think about this. Beethoven never actually heard most of his compositions, because in the latter part of his career, he was stone-cold deaf. The only place he ever heard a lot of his own music was in his own mind. And I've got to admit that to some degree, that's always bothered me. I mean, it, it seems cruel that a man with that kind of talent lost the one gift you need to enjoy it. It breaks your heart. I mean, considering all the joy that Beethoven has brought to this world, all these giant moments over the last 200 years when massive crowds of people are inspired by something like Ode to Joy or Beethoven's Fifth, it breaks my heart. I mean, think about this, Ode to Joy, part of the Ninth Symphony, was actually adopted as the official anthem of Europe by the Council of Europe in 1972, and today it's actually the official song, the official music, rather, of the European Union. Protesters use that music in Tiananmen Square. It was played to celebrate the breakdown of the Berlin Wall. There's a version of that in almost every Christian hymn book. There's no telling how many movies have used that music to create an emotional response. But Beethoven, he's never heard it. And I think I took that up in another program, actually, so I should probably get back to Bible prophecy and leave it at that. It breaks my heart, and I have faith that someday God's going to make all of that right. Now, Beethoven— and bible prophecy in the early days when napoleon was marching across europe beethoven was actually a big fan of his he he liked what napoleon was doing because in his mind napoleon was a liberator he was overturning monarchy he was undoing centuries of awful oppression in his mind what napoleon was doing was a continuation of the french revolution beethoven was so impressed that he actually dedicated his Third Symphony to Napoleon. It was an idea that he first had in 1798, the very year that Berthier marched on the city of Rome. So in kind of a funny way, the Third Symphony of Beethoven's might actually be a soundtrack for Daniel chapters 2 and 7. It's a majestic piece that sounds like an accolade to a conquering hero, It's a celebration of equality, fraternity, and liberty, the values of the new French Republic. They were, to a large extent, the same values that inspired the birth of the American Republic back in 1776, right? Don't forget, the Statue of Liberty was a gift from the French. So Beethoven is watching all this take place, and he is thrilled with the possibilities. Maybe, in his mind, all of Europe could be liberated. Maybe the masses could have the freedom to think and to speak and to prosper, if only they could get out from under the thumb of the people, the monarchs, the religious authorities who controlled them. Beethoven was celebrating the virtues that still excite most of us today. He actually dedicated the symphony for all the right reasons. But then things took a turn for the worst. Suddenly, Beethoven discovers that Napoleon's ego is just as big, or even bigger, than most of Europe's rulers. Napoleon, in fact, was so arrogant that he actually had himself crowned the Emperor of Europe in 1804. I mean, just two years before the invention of Nutella. And the plan was to have the Pope place a crown on Napoleon's head. But when that moment came in 1804 and the Pope started to say, Receive the imperial crown, Napoleon suddenly turned away, took the laurel wreath off his own head, grabbed the crown, and crowned himself. And I guess you could expect that from someone who was in the business of dethroning kings and popes. But that one event suddenly changes Beethoven's mind. His secretary, this guy by the name of Ferdinand Ries told the composer what had happened with Napoleon, and Beethoven, he just loses it. Ah, so he is no more than a common mortal, Beethoven said. Now, too, he will tread underfoot all the rights of man, indulge only his own ambition. Now he will think himself superior to all men and become a tyrant. Beethoven gets up. He walks over to the table and grabs the title page for this new third symphony, which had Napoleon's name on it. He rips that page in half and he throws it on the floor. And then he makes a new title page, one that says Sinfonia Eroica" or the Heroic Symphony. Now it's no longer dedicated to Napoleon, it's just dedicated to heroes in general. Today there's still an original copy of that title page, the one with Napoleon's name on it. I think you can find it in a museum in Vienna. I'm suddenly not remembering exactly where it is, but I think it's in Vienna and you can see where Beethoven actually scratched out Napoleon's name. It was just one more big disappointment in the great composer's life. He had already started losing his sense of hearing just a few years earlier, and now his hero proved to be a tyrant. Now that is the connection between Beethoven and Napoleon. So now, every time I listen to the Third Symphony, I'm reminded of the very same thing. Daniel too was absolutely right. Napoleon started out with every indication of success. His ambition took him places that few people ever go. He was on the verge of restoring the Western Roman Empire, and then it all begins to crumble. Like almost every other ruler in human history, Napoleon's ego gets the best of him. It's the same thing that happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He refused to believe the dream of Daniel 2. And in Daniel 3, you find him building this massive monument to his own greatness. And in Daniel 4, you actually find him losing his mind. It's the same thing that happens with Napoleon. Ultimately, he proves to be full of himself. And that's when it begins to fall apart. In 1812, he marches almost half a million men into Russia. But if I remember this right, he only comes home with 40,000. Half a million in... 40,000 home. In 1814, the French were forced to surrender to the Sixth Coalition and the Allies declare that Napoleon is, quote, the sole obstacle to the restoration of peace in Europe. And they exile him to the island of Elba. Of course, if you know history, you know that he escaped the following year and he makes one last-ditch attempt to take on Europe. But as you also know, the Duke of Wellington defeats him at Waterloo and he's exiled again for the rest of his life. And so ended the career of a man who tried to defy the book of Daniel. Now, I don't know for sure if Napoleon actually knew anything about the prophecy of Daniel. There there is a chance he did hear about it near the end of his life because there is this old story about someone who showed him that prophecy. And that story goes that Napoleon throws a temper tantrum, he beats his fist on the floor like a little four-year-old and Screams, God Almighty is too great, even for Napoleon. Now, whether or not Napoleon actually knew about Daniel II as he's marching across Europe, whether or not his military campaigns were a conscious defiance of God, his career still proves, once again, Daniel II is absolutely right. God said the fragmented parts, the nations of Western Europe, the the broken-up Western Roman Empire, God said they will not adhere to one another. And he was absolutely right. People have tried, and tried, and tried, and it has never come together. In, in more than 1,500 years, it has never come together. Why? Because God said it wouldn't. And today, we have at least two tangible reminders that Napoleon came and went just the way the Bible predicted. On the one hand, I'm reminded of it every time I hear Beethoven's Third Symphony. And I'm reminded of it every time I'm in the grocery store and I see a jar of Nutella. Both of those things easily outlive Napoleon's ambition. They're still with us, but Napoleon's empire is long gone. Now, I'm going to take a short break, and then I'm going to bring you into the story. So then we'll have Napoleon, Beethoven, Nutella, Bible prophecy, and you. And if you're wondering how I'm going to blend all of those together, I don't think you're going to want to miss what's coming up, so stick around.
1: Hello, I'm Jean Boonstra. Do you feel as if you have more questions than answers in your life? Are you searching for answers to some of life's biggest questions? Well, the Discover Bible Guides can help you find the answers you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or call us at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions.
0: And welcome back to another edition of The Voice of Prophecy, about the only place on earth you're going to get Beethoven, Napoleon, and a jar of Nutella in the same show. And just before I took a break, I was actually talking about the fact that you also happen to be part of the story. Now, today it might be something like 200 years after Napoleon, And it might be something like 2,600 years after Daniel chapter 2. But I can promise that you absolutely are part of this story. And to prove it, I want you to consider how the second chapter of Daniel ends. I mean, I want you to listen to this. This is how Daniel concludes his explanation. This is after he tells King Nebuchadnezzar there will be four world empires, followed by a divided Roman empire, the one that Napoleon could not reunite, And then one final kingdom. This is found in Daniel 2 and verse 44. Listen to what it says. And in the days of these kings, which kings? Well, it's the nations of Western Europe, the fragments of the Western Roman Empire. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. You see, the prophecy says there is someone who will succeed where Napoleon and Hitler failed. There is someone who's going to establish a global empire. And in the words of Daniel, the person who accomplishes that, it's the God of heaven. And that right there, that's the key point to all of Bible prophecy. The way this world is right now, not going to last doesn't really matter who wins elections, doesn't really matter who starts the next war, it doesn't really matter how big someone's empire, or someone's ego, or someone's ambition becomes, none of it is going to last. We've had roughly 2,600 years since Daniel explained the dream to Nebuchadnezzar, and every single player in that prophecy has now come and gone, with the exception of that final prediction, the nations of Western Europe. Nobody has built an empire on this planet that lasts forever. Every single attempt has failed. Every man-made kingdom has imploded. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, the world we live in today. Nobody has built an empire that solves our biggest problems. I want you to think about this. Every time we think we're getting close to a solution, every time we think we've taken one step closer to utopia, it suddenly all falls apart. Even the European Union, which had all the promise of the world, it's full of problems. Some nations are going broke. Some nations refuse to cooperate. Germany, of all countries, has become the economic powerhouse for the Union, but Germany's getting tired of bailing out failing countries like Greece. It had all the promise in the world, the European Union, but it doesn't work. Why? Well, it's because you and I don't have a solution. I know we've convinced ourselves that the human race is evolving, that it's slowly and steadily progressing toward utopia. But we've said that before, just before it all collapses. I don't know if you're aware of this, but just before World War I, a lot of people were convinced that the human race had progressed beyond any need for war. Recently somewhere, and I, I can't lay my hands on the book right now, I can't bring the title to mind, but recently I've read this description where people were actually standing up in the House of Commons in England, declaring that world peace had become a permanent reality. I mean, go go dig through history. You can find all these statements at the end of the 19th century where people are saying, hey, we have finally come to a place where war won't happen anymore. The New York Times, June 8, 1913, actually said this about Kaiser Wilhelm, and I quote, He, that's the Kaiser, is acclaimed everywhere as the greatest factor for peace that our time can show. It was he, we hear, who again and again, through the weight of his dominating personality, backed up by the greatest military organization in the world, an organization built up by himself, into the balance for peace, wherever war clouds gathered over Europe. Now that statement was 1913, one year before World War I. The Kaiser had been on the throne 25 years, and people were lauding him as Europe's great solution, the master of peace. But you know how that story played out. Every time when human beings try to solve the biggest problems on this planet, it ends in disaster. Our egos get in the way. Ambition takes over, diverts the original cause. It always ends in disaster. And that's because there's something fundamentally warped in the human mind. Try as we might, we can't shake the plague of human pride. And if we really want to be honest, we'd have to admit that every one of us suffers from the same problem. We all have egos. We're all the center of our own universe. And that's where you and I fit into this story. We might not be military leaders, but we all have self-made empires. To some degree or other, we are all building kingdoms. And in some ways, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you are responsible for your own well-being. You do need to provide for your family. But if you are banking on your own ingenuity to solve all of your problems, I promise you will hit a wall. Because that same prediction that ultimately defeated Napoleon is going to defeat all human ambition. The kingdom of God, the Bible says, is going to crush human kingdoms and sweep them out of the way. Why? Because the experiment in self-government, the experiment that began with our rebellion against God, it's been a miserable failure. Our history is littered with killing fields, Hitler killing millions, Leopold II killing millions, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot, the list is really long. The, The facts are plain for anybody willing to face it. When we grab the reins away from God and try to run this show ourselves, it was a disaster. Our planet is violent, it's polluted, it's plagued with disease and famine. It is a disaster. So after God allows us to go our own way, after he lets us see the end result of our rebellion, his plan is to sweep it all out of the way and push the reset button. And that's true for your personal ambition, too. If you and I spend our whole lives building a personal empire, we need to remember it will not last. Even if we die before the end of Daniel's prophecy comes to pass, your death will still be the end of your empire. There's only one thing that lasts forever. There's only one thing you can build your life on that will still be here in a million years. That is the kingdom of God. At some point in the not-too-distant future, another prediction in the book of Daniel is going to happen. A prediction found in Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man approaches the throne of God. And he receives a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And the good news is that you could stake everything on that kingdom. You could stake everything on actually being there. One day, Jesus will turn and say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's in Matthew chapter 25. Now, given the fact that you and I are invited, given the fact that there will be people who built their lives on Christ's kingdom, they'll be there forever, that should make us really think about what's important in life. Everything I build for me, it's going to be gone. Anything I do in the service of Christ's kingdom, it's going to last forever. God won't let us take the reins of this planet forever. He won't let us succeed in taking over everything because it's been a disaster since the word go. From the foundation of this world, he's had a plan to take the reins back. After we've had the opportunity to see what life is like without him, he's going to give it all back. Given the fact that you could be there, that should really make you think about what's important in life. I mean, think about this every time you see a jar of Nutella on the supermarket shelf. Think about Jesus' kingdom every time you hear Beethoven playing in the background somewhere. It's a reminder. God is right, and God is coming, and God's the only one who will ever build a kingdom that satisfies. You know, the more I think about this, the more I realize it's pretty amazing what you could find in a jar of chocolate hazelnut spread. Maybe you could find just a hint of the future. My name is Sean Boonstra, and you've been listening to The Voice of Prophecy.
1: Hello, I'm Jean Boonstra. Do you feel as if your life has lost its meaning, just moving from one task to another without any answers to the really important questions in life? Like, is it possible to have a fresh start and to find real happiness? Well, the Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers that you're looking for to this and to all of life's big questions. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at 888 456 7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions.